Let me pray before we look at the word together. Father, we thank you for the power of scripture to reveal your will for the nations and your sovereignty over all things. And we do ask that you would um, help us to grasp what's happening with Amos and the kingdom of Israel in the light of your sovereign plan for the ages, Lord. We thank you in Christ's name, amen. So, we're going to begin in Deuteronomy um, chapter 26, okay? So to understand Amos, you have to understand how much the people of Israel knew about their nation and its foundation and uh, all of that was recorded in great detail by Moses. So after the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt, if you know the whole story, God's mighty hand brought them out. They sinned greatly and they were made to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And God was with them the whole time and Moses led them the whole time. At the end of that time, um, the generation that had left Egypt, the older, anybody 20 and over had died out, except for Joshua and Caleb. And uh, that new generation and then their children are going to enter the Holy Land. So they, they, Deuteronomy it happens when they're literally standing on the edge of the Holy Land ready to go in. And Moses gives these great messages, these final sermons. And that's pretty much what Deuteronomy is. And then it tells you a little bit about how they prepared at the end. But near the end of Deuteronomy we have, we have the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai restated and expanded into a a very full and clear message. So God made a covenant with Israel at Sinai. 40 years later, it's being reinstituted or replayed, you know, for this new generation. They're going to realize what this covenant is and what it means. So Moses explains to them as a prophet of God what the covenant is, what they are agreeing to, what they as a people are agreeing to do, And what the blessings are for obeying the ordinances of the covenant and what the what the consequences are for disobeying that what we would call the curses and literally it is blessings and curses in Deuteronomy. So the curses are explained in a lot more detail than the blessings. Guess why? (laughs) Um, Because men are weak. Human beings are weak and we are prone to wander. And the generations that follow forget and they are as a people, as well as we've seen in our own lifetime, people forget um, their history, their past, what their purpose is, all of that. And of course people are the product of uh, a human system of government. You know, in our country we say we're a country, you can look at a coin, we're based on liberty, right? I mean it's all written on there and God we trust, all these things that people don't care about anymore or sort of civilization is moving against, less liberty, less trust in God and things like that. But um, so that's not divine, but uh, you know we have a system that our founders thought was the best system anybody had ever come up with, and it seemed like it worked for a long time, and now it's being forgotten. And people do that, and but also with things that God says, people forget and they drift away, and the next generation doesn't pay much attention to it anymore, and it keeps going like that. So at the end of Deuteronomy 26, we have this really, really clear declaration from God about what the great task before them entails what, what's required of them, what, what they're supposed to do. And sometimes it's called the Palestinian covenant because of their obedience or disobedience will determine whether they're allowed to stay in that land or if they'll be cast out as the people that they've driven out are cast out. That was always the, the thing that God said, it will happen to you what's happened to them 
if you behave like them. That was always what he said. So if you look at verse um, 16 in uh, Deuteronomy 26. This day the Lord God commands you to do these statutes and ordinances. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. Now is that a difficult thing to grasp or is that a pretty clear thing to grasp? It's pretty clear, right? Verse 17. You have today declared the Lord to be your God and that you would walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments and his ordinances and listen to his voice. Verse 18. The Lord has today declared you to be his people, a treasured possession and he promised you as he promised you and that you should keep all his commandments and that he will set you high above all nations which he has made for praise and for fame and honor and that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as he has spoken. That's just an incredible promise to any nation from the creator of the universe. There's all these nations but you I have chosen and I'm going to raise you high above all these other nations. That's a promise God made to the people of Israel. It's an extraordinary thing. And that's what we mean when we call the Jews the chosen people. That's exactly what they are. No other people group has had such incredible and wonderful promises made to them. But they had to be a consecrated people to keep it. So in the middle of chapter 27 of Deuteronomy a a series of curses are actually shouted out by the the Levites, the the Levitical priests to all the people and um, there's all kinds of laws there that they have to obey but they just pick like 10 or 12 of them and and shout them out and the people say they'll obey them. You know some of them even include sexual morality issues and things like that. And each time the Levites shouted cursed is he who does this then all the people say amen. So they're all agreeing that if you do these certain things you curse should come upon you. And then the last one in 27:26 he says cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say amen. So they all agree. They all said that. Then in 28 chapter 28 verse 2 he starts listing all the blessings that come with faithfulness to the Lord and there's just all kinds of wonderful things of truly what we would call a blessed life you know. But in verse 9 I just want to show you that part of it. It says the Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself as he swore to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways so all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will be afraid of you. So the world is to see this blessed people and in that way they would find God. That was the purpose for the nation of Israel. There's a reason Israel sits right where it does, where the Holy Land is. It connects all the great continents together. Africa below and Asia to the east and, um, and of course Europe to the, to the west there. And so if you if you want to go by land to the other places you go through Israel and uh, to c- it connects the great kingdoms of those days. So, And as people pass through there they would say wow what a blessed nation. 
you have all of these super wonderful things about you. Why don't you have all the problems all the other countries have? And they would say because of our God. That was the purpose. That was the purpose. So in chapter 28 verse 12 it says the Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its seasons and to bless the work of your hand and you shall lend to many nations but you shall not borrow. It's a blessing to be a lender, it's a curse to be a borrowing nation. I don't want to make any political comments but (laughs) just think about that. And then he says the Lord will make you the head and not the tail and you only will be above and you will not be underneath. If you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God which I charge you today to observe them carefully and do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today to the right or to the left to go after other gods and serve them. Now you know modern people think if they think religiously at all they, many people think you know if God just blessed me with every blessing possible known to man then I would love and obey him. People really think that. If he would just give me everything I wanted, sure, I'd follow him. That's actually not true. It's actually not true. In fact, the first man chose to walk out of paradise. Adam and Eve were not in a concentration camp. They were in perfection and had everything they could ever want, but they walked away. Because he wanted one thing more than having having every blessing that God can provide for a human being. Adam wanted to be his own God. He wanted autonomy. He wanted to go his own way. That's what Satan promised him. That's what Satan promises everyone. If you go your own way, you're going to be like God. Do as we, in the 60s we used to call it doing your own thing. <laughs> but he was only satisfied with walking away from the one who gave him paradise. And that's what Satan's path always is. Anything but love God. Anything but follow God. Anything but obey God is, is good for you. Whatever it is. Whatever floats your boat as they say. So um, God is, it's God's universe. That's our problem with that. It's actually God's universe and he's a moral being and he sets the standard of what's right and wrong. He's the very source of all that. So when man walks away because it's God's universe and he is moral, he judges wicked men. And that's the judgment side of morality. Morality has to reward and punish or there's no morality. So in Deuteronomy 28.15 the curses follow and there's a lot more curses laid out than blessings. Not because, because the blessings are very comprehensive but he wants them to know what it means if they don't live up to what they're promising to do. So all the way from verse 15 in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy to verse 68 every conceivable disaster and plague awaits them if they fail to keep the covenant. And captivity specifically is promised in verse 36 and verse verse 37 and verse 41. And let me just read to you because also in verse 47 he talks about it. So verse 47 of Deuteronomy 28, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart 
for the abundance of all things therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger in thirst in nakedness and in the lack of all things he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar and from the end of the earth as the eagle swoops down a nation whose language you shall not understand a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor nor show favor to the young and those final words of course are talking about the Assyrian invasion of 722 BC when uh, the, the people that Amos is speaking to, the prophet is speaking to, the northern kingdom of Israel, the Assyrians came and took them all away and destroyed them as a people and took them into captivity. And it's also talking about the Babylonian invasion of 605 BC when the Babylonians took the southern kingdom of, of Judah and took them all away. And if you want to just extend it all out, it, it's also talking about the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and the Roman Holocaust that happened right after that in AD 70, which ended the existence of Israel as a nation on the earth until modern times. So all of that's going on. So Amos, our prophet, we can go to Amos now. Amos, our prophet, is about 760 B.C., and the Assyrians are coming, God knows, in 722 B.C. So it's just a little bit before, a couple decades before. So God sent the prophet Amos to confront the nation of Israel with their abject failure to love God, to honor God, to obey the commandments of God as his chosen people. They aren't doing it at all. The kingdom was very rich, very prosperous, very successful. It wasn't very large, but it was even mighty in that particular period of time compared to its neighbors. So we've looked at Amos chapters 1 and 2 and and in chapter 3 a a new series of prophecies begin. So that's where we are today. Um, And the next several groupings of prophecies are introduced by the phrase hear this word. And that's when the prophet says that. And you're going to see that in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. So here it comes. Chapter 3 verse 1. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you sons of Israel. Against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. And verse 2 is just amazing. You only have I chosen from all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. That contrast deserves a lot of reflection and thought. I have chosen you, therefore I will punish you. God didn't choose them because they were wonderful. He chose them for a wonderful purpose that they could fulfill in the world, to make him known. They were not a wonderful people, as no people are wonderful in the eyes of God. They weren't superior people, but they were redeemed people. A people redeemed by a wonderful God. And so they had something wonderful to share and to show forth that God is a gracious God and he brings great blessing to those who know him. They were obligated by covenant to be a godly people and to be super blessed. I'll make a deal with you. I'll super bless you. No, I don't want that. (laughs) By this time in the 8th century BC, they didn't want to be godly. They didn't want to be. They didn't believe God would really bless them. They believed in carving out their own blessing 
even if you had to turn to other gods to receive those blessings or crush little people to have their blessings. That's what they were doing. So if the people of Israel found Amos's words strange there, you only have I chosen among the nations of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Well Amos helps them. He helps them understand what that means. And first it starts off with a series of seven questions and each of the questions kind of affirms, mainly what they do is they they affirm the natural order of things. In other words, every effect has a cause, right? That's how the world operates. That's what happens in life. So he starts with the effect and then he explains the cause and and he creates, this is Hebrew poetry now, so he's creating word pictures in their minds, right? So the first one, verse 3 says, do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment. Well typically you do make an appointment, right? You have some kind of an agreement. I mean I don't go out and walk around acting hoping to meet a friend of mine. (laughs) But if I call him up and I say you want to go walk around the park with me? That works, you know. We make an appointment, right? So they want to get together for some purpose whether it's friendship or business or something like that. They don't usually go out and just hope somebody will be there. They, They plan that. That's normal life. And they are of the same mind in important ways. That's really the idea here. So does Israel want to walk with God? No. They they don't. Are they in agreement with him about anything? No. They share no common interest. So Israel in these days doesn't want friendship with God. Not like they'd had in the past. They make no plans to be with him, to walk with him. They don't long for him. Now like it or not they are as a people in covenant with God that's the situation actually so and it's a covenant of blessings and cursings it's a covenant requiring them to be a holy people so question number two does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey okay what does that have to do with anything that's kind of like does a tree fall in the forest and nobody's there to hear no it's not like that but so Amos was a shepherd right he wasn't a prophet by he he was just called out of this normal life he lived you know sycamore trees and sheep that's what his life was and God said you got to be a prophet you're going to go to Israel get going well any shepherd would have experience with lions in those days lions in the Middle East were very common back then there used to be lions in America did you know that go to the La Brea tar pits they have their skeletons there lions are all over the place but um, they were there in the Middle East back then and as a shepherd he would know lion behavior pretty well and lions were very common but lions make certain sounds when they catch something it's it my translation says roar it doesn't necessarily have to be translated it just means voice the lion's voice so he's making some kind of liony sound when he catches something is it right for God to roar when he's about to punish remember Amos chapter 1 verse 2 he says the Lord roars from Zion the Lord roars from Jerusalem talks about that so um, he utters his voice so um, that's, the, that's the one question. Then the second part of the couplet, Hebrew's almost always, Hebrew poetry is almost <coughs> two lines and the second line in some way adds or emphasizes from the first line. So the second line, that's the third question, is in verse 4, does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? So it's a similar idea in the same little poetic couplet there. In this case he's asking if the young lion gets excited if mom brings home anything back from the hunt if she fails to bring something back. So if she just wanders back and she doesn't have some meat with her, does he get excited? No, he's like, hi mom. (laughs) But if there's meat there, (laughs) he gets all excited. So Amos is probably saying here that the prophet, as a prophet, that um, 
he would not be calling condemnation out against Israel if her sins didn't require it. In other words, he's acting because there's a cause for that reaction. He's speaking forth God's word. So God's judgment has a cause, just like these events in nature have causes. The cause of judgment will be their sinfulness. So the next couplet in questions four and five are both in verse five. And here Amos uses two word pictures also involving the trapping of a, an animal. In this case it's humans trapping a bird. Now it's just interesting that all these things have to do with getting caught and eaten in some way. You know that kind of a thing. But um, because that's what God is going to do to Israel. Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there's no bait on it? No bait in it. He says no. I mean that's, these are all expecting no kinds of answers. Does a trap spring from the earth? when it captures nothing at all. Only if I lay it will it spring from the earth <laughs> with nothing in it. It'll just, it'll just bounce anyway and I'll go, why well, there's nothing in there? But um, generally it doesn't. The, the expected answer is no. So in verse 5 again you've got something being caught and the implication being that God is going to trap Samaria, um, the center of Israelite power and the main idea, the main idea is that events have a cause. So two more questions in verse 6, verse question 6 and 7. And here it gets much closer to the reality. These are kind of images so far, but now it's getting closer to the reality of what Israel's going to actually face. So verse 6 is a if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? Now why are they trembling? Because that's an alarm. And it means there's people outside the walls. And that is what will happen to the city of Samaria, the capital of Israel. We're seeing that in the world today. You turn on the TV and you see video of uh, Kiev and there's air raid, air raid sirens going off, right? So they used to blow a trumpet when the enemy was close and the danger was close. So the, it's really obvious in the first question of verse 6, if you live in a city where the war alarm sounds from your walls, you are naturally going to be worried. And then verse 7, uh, we have the theological import that such a moment makes, uh, when such a moment makes its appearance and that is that God rules over all things. If calamity comes, that's the the second part of verse 6 says, if a calamity occurs in the city, has not the Lord done it? If a calamity occurs, the Lord is doing it. He's ordaining that to happen. And then verse 7 you have this theological explanation of all this. Back in Isaiah, Isaiah is actually after Amos in time, Isaiah 45, 6 and 7 The Lord says, I am the Lord, there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So God is sovereign over all the affairs of men. That's one of the great comforts the believers over there um, in Ukraine are dealing with right now. They're experiencing that comfort because they know that God is sovereign over all things. But it's still a little scary, you know? But if calamity comes, he's ordained it. He's sovereign. So Amos is using the question to get Israel thinking about that. And and here's the thing. For a covenant people, he's giving a fair warning. And that's what Amos' job is, to give them a warning. Very clear warning. And this is where the idea of a prophet actually comes in. So verse 7, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants the prophets. Wow. If God's going to do it, he's going to tell the prophets about it. Now that's not true about everything in the world. It's true about his covenant people. 
He won't do anything with his covenant people unless he tells the prophets because the rest of the world doesn't have real prophets. God causes calamity but for his own people he will explain what that calamity is and why it is through his chosen spokesman, the prophets. So God reveals to prophets what only he can know. Only God knows the future. That's why the Bible gives us a test for prophets. Because a lot of people out there say they're prophets and they're not because they don't know the future. They can't tell the future. But God, and a, and a, and a biblical prophet doesn't like intuit the future. You know, I have this awareness, this thing comes upon me. No, a, 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 that's a, a real prophet. God informs them. God informs them of the future and then they repeat what they don't have some mystical powers or anything. But false prophets, pretend prophets, the ones on TV, false prophets can only guess at the future and they're almost always wrong. I guarantee you there's no prophets right now that are predicting the outcome of the war in Ukraine because they're going to blow it. Well, or it's just a 50-50 chance or whatever, you know. So they always are really cautious about real things and they they only throw out stuff when they get their hearts all warmed up. But real prophets know the future because God reveals it to them. So now Amos um, speaks for himself as God's representative in verse 8. A lion has roared, who will not fear? Okay, so if you hear an alarm on the wall, you've got a reason to fear. There's an enemy outside your city. The Lord has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? So the book of Amos began with God roaring from Zion, chapter 1 verse 2, and now Amos is going to speak because God is roaring and it's the job of the prophet to tell the people what he's roaring about, what he's saying. So that's what he's got to do. How can he keep it in when God is speaking and says you need to tell them? How can he not speak? And it doesn't matter what people think about it. It doesn't matter how they're going to respond to what he has to say. It, It seems very clear that they won't respond and we know that they don't, but they will know. They will know that they are rejecting God's message. That's what matters. So prophets don't know the future by magic. They, re- they know it by God's direct revelation to them. They are heralds. Heralds of God. You remember in the Middle Ages? Your herald would go out there before the army and proclaim things to the other side. Their herald would come out and proclaim things. Then they'd go sit on a hill and watch the battle and write down what happened. And that's really true. That's what they would do. Nothing just happens. God ordains and he reveals to the prophets what's going to happen. The other important parts of what the Lord determines, um, everything he wants us to know, he reveals to the prophets. Now again, God knows all about the future and he doesn't reveal everything. He doesn't reveal most things, but he reveals the things he wants us to know. So the capital of Israel, Samaria, was built on a mountain, but they were, there were surrounding mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. You could look down on the city of uh, Samaria from those mountains. So the Lord does what he often does in the Old Testament. He, he calls on witnesses to come and see what he's about to do. And these witnesses amazingly enough are, well sometimes they're in nature. Like sometimes, in fact even in Deuteronomy God says, I call heaven and, heaven and earth to witness to this day what he's about to do. So sometimes he calls on nature to kind of be a witness. Sort of an idea there. But here he's calling two other nations, not happy nations either. He picks the Philistines and the Egyptians to watch. 
So he invites these pagan nations to come and see what he's going to do to Israel. Verse 9, proclaim on the citadels of Ashdod, that's one of the main, that's one of the big five cities of the Philistines, and good heavens there, Israel's former cruel oppressors, the Philistines and the Egyptians, they are invited to watch. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressions of her midst. So he calls on Ashdod, Philistine city, and the Egyptians. We haven't, he hasn't even mentioned Egypt yet. So here's the first time we've talked about Egypt and he's saying, you, you used to oppress Israel, you held them in bondage for hundreds of years, uh, God redeemed them out of you for a mighty, and now I want you to come and watch what I'm going to do to them on the mountains. He's actually inviting Egypt to watch their destruction. Isn't that incredible? Those people didn't have God's word. They were, they were not in a covenant with him. They, they are asked to come and watch God's judgment on people who do have God's word. Because it's a way worse sin to have it and disobey it than it is to not know about it and just be your typical horrible pagan. It's much worse to be a horrible covenantal person than it is to be a horrible pagan. Much worse because they know better. People of the covenant. So Israel because they have God's word and they behave no better than these pagan states do, they have a greater responsibility, right? So verse 10, they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord. Those who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels. So Israel is so steeped in its sin, they don't even know how to think about what's right anymore. It's not like they read the Bible and then decide to, they don't even bother, they don't even care what God's word says. So these corrupt well the elites of Israel who are monstrously unjust people they rig everything to their advantage and they deny justice to the poor we've already talked about it in the first couple chapters they don't believe God's going to hold them accountable they don't think that's going to happen they are focused entirely on personal gain that's what they live for that's all they think about they arrange everything to benefit them they don't seek God's blessing by being obedient they use conniving and criminality and injustice to fix everything so they feel like they can be blessed they can live this splendorous life you know that's what they're doing personal gain that's the human condition in all times and in all cultures Israel was supposed to be different than that yes every culture acts like that Israel was supposed to be different and they aren't. They're doing just what everybody else does. They prioritize personal gain over what is right. You know, you can corrupt things in different ways. I mean, you can corrupt things in horrific, overt ways or you can corrupt things in boring, subtle ways. You know, just kind of of happens and you just kind of arrange things and fix things to be a certain way. It happens, corruption happens with great evil, I mean monstrous, monstrous evil, and then just the simple patterns and structures of everyday life. You can work things out to just benefit you and not other people. Almost by neglect, if you will. I'm going to give you two examples because two things I read this week really just struck me and I'm just going to use these examples. So the first example is the subtle, boring way that things happen. Okay, so um, you would think that after, well, I read an article about a high school in Baltimore, 
And I don't know why I read it, but it just struck my interest. Because <laughs> I don't live in Baltimore. But you would think after all these years and all these vast universities that we have and all the colleges that specialize in education that we would have education kind of down, right? Like we would get it, like how to actually do it and create citizens that are well-educated and can function in society. That you just would think that, that would be the case. Well, this article is about achievement levels at Patterson High School in Baltimore. So just kind of hang with me for a second. It says, in reading, 628 Patterson High School students took the test. So there's this test of proficiency. A lot of the students didn't even take it, which probably they're not going to do real well on it. These are the ones that did take it. Out of those students, 628 students, 484 of them, or 77%, tested at an elementary reading level. That includes 71 high school students who are reading at the kindergarten level, 88 reading at the first grade level, another 45 are reading at the second grade level. 12 students out of the 628 tested at Patterson High School were reading at grade level, which comes to 1.9%. And then it goes on. Baltimore schools has a one-fail policy which states students cannot be retained a second time prior to ninth grade. That means students go to the next grade no matter how little work is completed. At Patterson High School, 575 students took the iReady math assessment, but just 17 of those students tested at algebra and geometry level math, which are courses required to graduate. That comes out to 2.9%. The data shows 455 students or 79% of the students tested were doing math at an elementary school level. Of those students, 35 tested in kindergarten, 66, this is math. 66 at first grade level and 79 at the second grade level. These are American youth. They live in the greatest country in the world. So I read that and I thought somebody is very comfortable with all these young lives being destroyed. uh, Destroyed, you know. How how are they, what are they going to do with their lives reading at the kindergarten level? My wife's a kindergarten teacher. Believe me, it's not that high a level. And this human disaster, and and it's a disaster. That human disaster is a fruit of something. What's it the fruit of? What leads to to that? What's the cause for the effect in this kind of a situation, right? Well, it's a whole system of professional educators, administrators, unions, elected school boards, mayors, councilmen, up and down the chain being completely content with that being the case. They're fine with it. Politicians beholden to unions so no competition is, can be ever be allowed. Parents can't choose the schools their kids go to in those situations so they're trapped. Policies at every level of government all the way from the federal all the way down that discourage marriage and make it more profitable to raise children without fathers. That's another factor. And there's this vast, extremely rich and decadent entertainment culture aimed at children, teaching them that self-gratification is everything and that wisdom and self-discipline is nothing. They don't don't talk about it ever. And now, add on all of that an ideology that's everywhere now that blames all these failures on Western civilization, white supremacy and colonization. So vast sums are paid to people not to teach, but to tell you that the whole world is against you. That, that's, that's, that's a tragedy of unbelief. It is a crime. It is a crime. That's the way it happens in this sort of 
boring, bureaucratic way that these horrible crimes are committed against people. The priority of, and you know what? All of those people get all these big salaries, you know, good retirements, good salaries. The priority of personal gain over the good, it, that's the human condition. It's woven into the fabric of human civilizations. Now the other thing I read this week is a little different. It's a book that, um, called Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland. So I've been reading that book this week. It's about this German police unit in World War II made up of men that were too old to go to the front lines and be soldiers, so they're sent to Poland by Nazi Germany to kill as many Jews as they possibly can. That's their purpose for existence. They don't know it until they get there. In fact, the first time they're going to slaughter a whole village of Jewish people, they're, they're told one hour before what they're there to do. They didn't even know that. They just thought they were going to be policing Poland while the troops were moved on ahead and they would kind of take care of things. Can you imagine being in that situation? So they're commandant, the first time they did this, and they did it many, many, many times. The first time they did it, he says, men, we have a kind of a difficult assignment before us, very uncomfortable, it's going to make you, a lot of you uh, feel poor. If anybody doesn't want to participate, um, you're, you're free to step out. And then he told them what they were going to do. Like 10 guys stepped out, like 10% of the, the group stepped out and said, I don't want to do that. And he said, okay, you can do something else, we'll have you do something else other than actually shoot people. So they would round up all the Jews in the town that could walk, and if you couldn't walk, babies, um, sick people in bed, or elderly people that couldn't move quickly enough, they would just shoot them on the spot in their homes. Everybody else they would bring to the center of town, and then they would separate the men and the women, and then they would, in groups of about 25 or 30, they would march them into the woods and make them lay on the ground and shoot them. They were supposed to shoot them in the back of the neck, but often they got lazy and, or, it's a hard thing to do that but they would shoot him in the back of the head and brains and blood would be splattered all over the guys that were shooting them. But some of the men actually objected on the very first day and said they wouldn't shoot him. And it was okay. To, they said, it's okay, you don't have to. As long as we have enough shooters, you don't have to. So they would give them other jobs, just rounding people up or guarding the edges or something like that. And those guys that wouldn't shoot for moral reasons or whatever, and that's usually what it was, there's no way I'm going to shoot an unarmed civilian. They would just wouldn't do it. They were called names by those that would shoot. They were called weak and womanly and cowardly. Now, people that are laying women and children on the ground and shooting them in the back of the neck are calling cowardly people that refuse to do that. That's how the world thinks, you know. But enough people were willing to be shooters, so those guys really didn't have to do it. There were always enough shooters. So only about 10% said they wouldn't actually do it. And since most of those people were older, these are people that are 35 to 45 generally, about that age group. So they were not raised in Nazi youth. They were raised before that arose. They were born around the turn of the century. Um, about a third of them belonged to the Nazi party. Most of them weren't even Nazis officially, you know, or anything like that. They just were police. They wanted to be policemen. So psychologists are really interested in that the dynamics of that. How could normal people, that's why it's called ordinary men, how could ordinary men at that level of percentage come to the place where they willing, they're willing to eliminate human beings like that in cold blood? So the book offers all kinds of speculation and psychology and theories and all that. It's quite, quite a long thing. It's very interesting watching them speculate. There's one word that 
is not used and the whole long chapters on the psychology of murder like that and what's going on in people's heads and there's one word that isn't used even one time it's a three letter word it's very small sin it's not even like part of the thing that human beings are sinful that isn't it that was all about and of course there's psychological factors and all that stuff that makes people do things but um, doesn't even mention sin Nazism and anti-semitism is just one form of sin it's just one kind of sin it's not more sinful than other cultures have done and things like that it's it's just more shocking to, to most of us but it, it it is sin that allows hundreds of students that allows for that to, to live a doomed life in America I mean that's a sin to, to not care about their future enough to change things and it's a sin to murder helpless people that's a sin human beings are sinful at a deep and fundamental level that's why we need a savior but every civilization in every civilization sin eventually rises to the top most civilizations are built on some kind of core idea but eventually they collapse because sin always rises to the top and people stop believing in whatever was the foundational beliefs of their thing and and eventually people learn for their own aggrandizement and personal wealth to break the system or manipulate the system for their own glory and their own wealth and their own prestige and their own um, just satisfying their, their base desires that always happens there's not one exception of a civilization where that hasn't happened so we're going through that right now in our civilization it is sin and that's exactly why things don't get better <laughs> you think things sometimes do get better in certain ways you know society sort of rise and then they stop getting better and then they start declining that always happens it's happening in our day sin is crouching at the door as God told um, Cain and so it was with Israel so the whole nation was sold into sin and God's commandments they weren't even aiming for God's commandments they weren't even talking about them anymore they were rejected so God ordained this severe judgment at the hand of the very cruel Assyrians which was the rising empire up to the north of them and that was declared way back in, in verse 2 we mentioned that I will punish you for all your iniquities that's what God is going to do so of course some are going to survive and that's what verse 12 was about we're almost done here but verse 12 is a little bit odd so I want to talk about it for a second some remnant has to survive of Israel because a glorious future awaits for Israel when Messiah comes one day he's going to make Israel the head and not the tail he, that's the promise that's the absolute promise in scripture over and over and over and over again God will come and by his grace will make Israel the head and not the tail so it won't be their obedience he's going to do it he's, he's obeying for us in salvation and he's going to bring that to about for them by his grace at the end of the age so the language in verse 12 is really interesting thus says the Lord that sounds really formal just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear okay stop right there I had to stop right there like what? <laughs> read that again just as a shepherd snatches from the what shepherd does that <laughs> a lion's running away with your sheep and you run after it and grab it trying to get a piece of it back <laughs> I don't, that's a really weird thing to say that's positive thinking <laughs> <laughs> so many scholars believe that this describes the deliverance of a remnant of Israel because there's always going to be a remnant because the word my New American Standard Bible translates that word snatches away and other Bibles translate it like uh, deliver or rescue what do you got there Mark? NASB, I'm with you. 
Okay, good. <laughs> He's holding it up. Good man. Except I think they're wrong in this particular translation. It, it, it seems to, um, in like 180 times, it, it's that word is translated rescue or deliver in the Old Testament, and maybe three times or something, something else. So probably that's the idea. So there's always going to be a remnant that God's going to save uh, out of his own people for the future because he is going to bless them someday. So it's a very, this is a good thing. Uh, it's a positive image here, not a negative image here. But I think the imagery is pretty shocking actually, the shepherd even doing that, snatching parts out of an animal's mouth, a predatory lion's mouth. So why do that? Why would he do that? Well, there, there's a little verse in, in the law in Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 12 about taking care of somebody else's animal. Like, I'll be out of town for two weeks, can you watch my sheep? Sure, I'll watch your sheep. Yes, I'd be happy to watch your sheep. I'll take care of them. Now, and so there's laws about that because what if something happens to the animal while the person that said they would watch it, um, you know, is overseeing it. So if the animal drops dead or gets sick, it's, that person doesn't have to, is not responsible for that person that loaned them the animal. He doesn't have to pay him another sheep or give him money or anything for the sheep or anything like that. But if it's stolen, he does. He's kind of responsible to watch over it from being stolen. So a, ba- a bad man might say, um, well let's say an animal kills the animal, kills the animal or takes it away to eat it, like a lion comes by and takes it away. So the guy, the, the, the owner might say, well you know, how do I know that really happened, you know? Um, I loaned you my sheep and maybe you're hiding it somewhere. So in the law of Moses in, in Exodus 12, the, the person can swear that they didn't steal it. And the person has to accept that because then God will judge that person. They have to just accept that that's the case. But um, there's, a, there's sort of a little aspect of the law. If it was stolen while in his carry, he does have to make restitution. But if he can prove that it was taken by a predator. So ordinarily I think what you would do is follow the predator and after it's eaten it, you bring back some parts of it and show that this was taken by a predator. And if it was taken by a predator, you don't have to pay for it. In other words, if you can show physical evidence that that sheep or donkey or whatever it was that you were taking care of. So this is Exodus 22:13. It says, if it was all torn to pieces, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn to pieces. So if a lion grabs the sheep, it's financially advantageous to get part of it back. Now, I would pay rather than chase the lion. <laughs> and try to get it out of its mouth because I probably the lion doesn't want you to do that. <laughs> and my guess is very few people ever did that. I think, I think the law's assumption is you find out where that animal was being eaten and you bring back after they're done, you bring back parts of it or whatever like that. So Amos is talking about rescuing an ear. Like here's my ear, it, th- that's your sheep. <laughs> um, or the leg or something like that. So. Uh, Now maybe there was a famous often told story about a shepherd who ran out after the lion and saved a few pieces or something like that and maybe maybe Amos is making a reference to that story. I don't know. Maybe that's that's true. But I think typically you're not going to run after the lion and try to pull the things out of his mouth. But um, I think Amos uses this mental picture for a reason. I, I think it shows how worthless the rescued parts are. I got the near. I got his foot. Uh, great, thanks. You know, I mean, that's so. Even the remnant that God is going to deliver from the Assyrians—they're just as messed up as everybody else. It's not that they're godly; 
It's that he's saving them as a people for the future, but they're, they're, they're a useless remnant. You, you can't cook the ear and, or offer it back to the guy that lost his sheep or something like that. Anyway, so going back to verse 12 here, it says, so like those dangling parts, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be rescued or snatched away with the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. That makes it even weirder. (laughs) What's the bed or the couch about? Well, you won't find an elite Israelite that's unjust and is ruling over the the lower people and is um, taking advantage of the poor that person isn't going to be out working in a field. He's going to be sitting on a beautiful bed or a divan, you know, the kind of couches they had in those days, all padded and luxurious. So, so this uh, snatching away of the sons of Israel will be, will include like, it's like grabbing something and you're grabbing also a corner of their luxury. So it's, it's that idea. They're sitting on these luxurious couches. That's going to, you're going to see that as we move forward. We're done today because we're out of time. But, um, I, I think I think Amos to these people would you know the guy at the sandwich board that says repent and the the end is near those kind I think that's how they viewed Amos. Israel was wealthy, they were riding high, and Amos comes to them, and he says the end is near, and they're saying doesn't look near to us, but it is near, because Amos is God's mouthpiece. So even though they are a chosen nation, verse one, God will punish them severely. And uh, in the next section, we'll see that God addresses these very wealthy and decadent Israelites. And in, in, in chapter four, he's going to talk about their wives. And he doesn't use very polite language. So you can see it already in verse 15 here. Uh, we're not going to talk about it today, but we'll look at it next week. Where Amos, Amos talks about their houses of ivory. So that's what the bed and the couch thing is. These people are luxurious or laying around while other people are toiling. So um, we'll look at that next time. But never forget this. Men ignore God at their peril. Judgment is real. God is holy. And he has expectations of human beings. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us through Christ. Because we are sinners too. And we don't deserve your, we don't deserve your kingdom. We don't deserve to belong to you. But you've sought us out by the blood of Jesus and his wonderful compassion. And we thank you for that. We pray though that as your people we would manifest you in this world through our love, our putting others before self by doing what's right no matter what it costs us and fulfilling as much as we can in the most careful ways that we can your your will for us in this life. That's what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.